Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a fun-filled, fun-packed episode you for you. You don't even know that, you liar. I know. You're I know so enough. presumptuous. I am presumptuous. I, I think this episode is filled with ambition. Is that the right word? Audacity. Audacity, that's right. Yeah. Often audacity and ambition go well. well. Actually, this guy did have a ton of ambition as well. There you go. I'm excited. I'm excited. Before you get we get into it, what have you got for us? Well, Chris, I think this is a great time for me to tell you about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a multi-service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, I got like a crazy wax this time. Did you get that wax? What is that? It's a 3M spray wax. Have you used it? Yeah. Oh, it's really good. It's good. I've already. I shined up my new Honda monkey with it. Ooh, yeah. It seemed like it was some sort of special wax that I'd never heard of before. It was interesting. It's cool just to get new I guess stuff. I don't, I don't read close enough, so I just sprayed it. You remember? It <laughs> so do you remember the days? Be- you're young. Maybe you don't. But you remember the days before phones, before the internet? Okay. And you would sit on the toilet and read shampoo bottles just to, like, read the ing- you read the ingredients? Just as something to do. Just as something to do. I feel like I had or done that shower, once or you're just, like, standing there and be like, oh, yeah, proppy glip a gleep a glean. I wonder what that is. Oh, yellow number five. Ooh, that's Ooh, the that's bad, a one. bad one. We don't want to use this. <laughs> <laughs> None of the, you don't get any of that in your petrol box, but you do get some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, we got the cool wax that we got just this week. Oh, and it had the clay bar. So you can clay bar, which I do need to clay bar all of my vehicles, actually. Um, but you get tools, detailing supplies, as we're talking about, apparel. I'm wearing one of their t-shirts right oh, now. I see that. This is one of my favorite t-shirts. You like that one? I like this one. Every month that you get a new t-shirt with them, you get garage gear. Stickers, you know stickers, it's publications. Monday. It's Monday, which means we'll have an overcrest shirt for you very soon, too. Very Ooh. excited about that. The driver's club shirt. My shirts, closet yeah. is filling up. Yeah, t-shirts. but this is very special. You can put I'm this excited for this t shirt. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it's a curated selection of the latest and greatest petrol box. That's what? <laughs> what? <laughs> the latest and greatest petrol box is in the petrol box? Wow. No, like I'm reading, of, but and then I felt like, like I needed to paradox. clarify that we're talking about petrol box, not the t-shirt from Overcrest. Oh, yes, you yes, threw yes. me off there. Well, this so, is like some sort of black box. hole thing. It's like some sort of paradox. <laughs> you know, look at yourself in the mirror, and you got a mirror in front of you and a mirror behind you, is and it's this, just like, it's like Christopher forever. Is this an ad read in an ad read in an ad read? Oh, it's been accepted. <laughs> Anyways, head over to PetrolBox.com. Actually, it's MyPetrolBox.com. Be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout. You get $6 off your first month. There's two different levels to choose from. You PetrolBox Basic is less than 20 bucks a month, while the PetrolBox Premium gets you even more gear. For how much, Chris? $39.95 a month. They're fun. They are a ton of fun. It's like Christmas morning every time it comes in. You know what's the problem? And I say this every week, and I know my wife listens. Stop opening my petrol box. (laughs) It's mine. Knock it off. It's knock it off. That's it. Mypetrolbox.com. You you lose the... the Yeah, it's not as fun when the seal has been broken. Absolutely. You know what I'm going to do now? You know what she likes to do? You know when you have something that's shiny... And you get to peel that like shiny stuff, the stuff that protects, like if you have a television and the bezel is shiny, it's got that plastic stuff over right. it and you just, peel just it off. Just the protective film. She loves peeling those off. Never again. Why? No, because she opens my petrol boxes. Oh! Yeah, so it's something she really likes to do. Also the bubble wrap. You know what? I'm going to blackmail my kids. Jesse, if you open my petrol box again, our kids never get bubble wrap again. They're going to hate you. Because I've, I've taken all the bubble wrap away from our children because you keep opening my petrol boxes. I am. Why, 
why do your kids like the petrol the the bubble wrap? What kid doesn't like bubble wrap? Do you just buy them bubble wrap? No, everything comes with bubble wrap, especially the big bubble wrap where it pops and makes big sounds. No more. That's it. Oh, Stop geez. opening my petrol box. Oh, That's all geez. I can say about that. All right, what do we got? What's all going right. on? So this is an amazing story that I had never heard of, and I'm quite certain most others haven't heard of either. It's a story of the unbelievably brave and sheer audacity of this one American hero. All right. But with all these, we've got to start at the beginning. Yes, with some funny names of people. Because that's how it always ends up. It's like, John Burger, Burger Man. <laughs> there was like a burger guy. Uh, well, this is Bruce Ward Carr. Bruce Carr. Bruce I like Carr. it. Bruce Carr. Hey, what's... Hello, Mr. Carr. Is, this, is it C-A-R-R? It is double R. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah. So he was born in Union Springs, New York in 1924. And as far as we know, had a quiet early life. Nothing totally remarkable. Of course... So he's not making, like, water-powered... CNC machines, like, <laughs> oh, like the other what? guy did. There was this other dude. He made like water-powered drills and stuff like that. Oh, you're that right. Guy? He did do that. Like all kinds of crazy. This guy was just normal. This well, is a normal dude. Kind of, he was normal, but he also was super duper into airplanes. Ah. Which what young boy doesn't like? Just love and feel enamored to, with planes. You know what? We did a Lockheed Martin exactly. Thing, which but if you haven't listened to that, you are you missing. Gotta go back. You're missing out. I love planes. I wanted to be a pilot. We went to the Air and Space Museum. Love planes. Planes yeah, were. Especially it. in the early part of the 20th century. I tried to sign up for the Air Force. Did you really? And the Navy. What happened? And the Army. Wait, I, what? What? Yes, I did. I have like really bad asthma. So they're like, yeah, sorry, no. They really? Didn't anybody. Yeah. Well, maybe once we go to war and everybody's dying, they'll let me in. How's so, your asthma today with this? Uh, honestly, I can feel it. Yeah, yeah I can feel I it outside. It. It's pretty bad. All right, anyways, um, planes were still a new phenomenon in the early part of the 20th century. A miracle of engineering, if you will. Why is this plant here? Just stop touching it. It's fine. Everybody can't see. Jake keeps touching the plant with his hand. Stop. I, I gesture stop. wildly. <laughs> I'm wildly gesturing. He's like, there's this stupid house plant you know just off fine. to the side. I'll move it. Keep no, talking. I like it. I like it. Uh, so people didn't just hop on a plane every day at the local airport. Flying was the thing of dreams to many. And it only emblazoned young Bruce. He was confident from an early age that he would become a pilot. This wasn't some far off pie in the high dream that his parents said, "What? why, damn it, Chris. All right, we're all set. This is the most unprofessional you've ever hey, been. It's, it's just the way that it is. You want to start over a little farther back? No, I don't. All right, keep going Jesus. then. Jesus, okay, what, do you even know what I'm talking about? I don't, let's go back a little bit. <laughs> 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 Let's go back a little bit. Okay, well, let me tell you about Bruce. He's young. He likes planes, but 20th I like century. Planes too. Everybody likes yeah, planes. Planes blah, blah, blah. were a new phenomenon. It yep. was a miracle engineering. You didn't just hop on a plane at your local airport after going through TSA and Over getting violated. Cliff Notes edition. Yes, yeah. So <laughs> flying was the thing of dreams to many, but that didn't stop young Bruce from dreaming big. He it was, was emblazoned. Could, nobody could, not just everybody could fly. Right. If you look back at the old, what things that I love about old plane stuff is you look back, people are wearing the best clothes that they have. They're not, they're not sitting <laughs> oh, there. Oh, you're with talking a, like in the 50s where you'd go yeah. on the airline. Okay. Yeah. No, this is before, oh, this like, is way this before. Way before. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so, but Bruce is like, yeah, I'm confident I'm going to become a pilot. He had laser sharp focus, is how it was described through school and his personal life. He dedicated himself to his dream of becoming a pilot and it paid off 
When Bruce was only 15, he befriended a pilot instructor at the most nearby airfield. I don't know how nearby it was. It was probably 100 miles away that he yeah, walked. Probably not a like, lot of airfields. Excuse me, sir. I want to become a pilot. Can yeah. you teach me? Yeah. And actually, John Johnny Burns wasn't used to instructing such young students, but Bruce was tenacious. Wait, wait, wait. This guy's name was John Johnny? Well, his nickname's John. He goes by Johnny. Okay. So it's John Burns. Jonathan Burns. Well, just call him Johnny then. Johnny Burns. Why'd Johnny you to, Burns. Why'd you have to say John Johnny? It made it seem like his middle name was Johnny. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Who would do that to their kids? It's your nickname, Johnny. All right, so Johnny wasn't used to teaching young kids like 15, but our, our friend Bruce was just so damn tenacious and probably annoying that he basically just let him come up in a plane with them. But as it turned out, young Bruce was just a natural at this. So much so that Johnny agreed to take him under his tutelage. In no time, Bruce was flying solo, honing his skills in Johnny's aircraft. And I wasn't able to find what type of aircraft Bruce was flying at the time, but you need to realize that the development of planes since the introduction was like a breakneck pace. So think about it. The Wright brothers first took place in 1903. First of all, though, we had like a thousand years of people trying to tape feathers to their arms. Well, that didn't right? work very well. No, but you just see like the old videos of like people going like this Actually, with their arms, just flapping yeah. their arms around. They had like discs with like canvas on them. They're trying to like jump off buildings and flap. And their then arms. you had Da Vinci's like spiral helicopter yeah. thing. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that You're right. didn't work. You're right, it didn't work. But, but once it worked. It was like crazy exponential development. So 1903 is when Wright Brothers first took flight. By the time young Bruce was flying, only 30-some years later, aircraft looked more or less similar to what they do today. Cessnas were on the scene, along with all their manure of civilian planes that can still be seen at today's municipal airfields. So you went from literal canvas and string to contemporary airframes all in the span of a couple decades. Well, you have to keep in mind this is Industrial Revolution time. Hydraulics became invented. Cables. Well, most or much of this boom in technology can, and is so often the case, be attributed to wartime ingenuity. Yes. World War I saw the first use of aircraft in war. Now, initially, air combat was extremely rare, as the primary use of these planes was just for reconnaissance. There are even stories of crew of rival reconnaissance aircraft exchanging nothing more belligerent than smiles and waves. Oh, hey there, Germans. How you doing? Yeah, no guns. Hello, fellow pilot. Just up here, loving the skies. Uh, This soon progressed. Maybe some gestures. Maybe some. They said smiling and waves. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. You're not sure about that? <laughs> no, I'm well, going to go with you're gestures. Right, because it did soon progress to throwing grenades at each other. Oh, could you imagine me like, all right, pulling the pen and be like, all right, one, here one he comes, thousand, here he comes. Two, one thousand. <laughs> the out there. Jeez. And often other objects such as grappling hooks. Which I don't know do? if they're hooked up to the plane still, and you're just going to try to drag them, or if they're just hoping it gets like hung up in the rotor, the not rotor, the propeller. I I don't, I don't know, but grappling hooks they throw at each other. The first aircraft ever to be brought down by another was an Austrian reconnaissance aircraft rammed on September eighth, nineteen fourteen, by Russian pilot Pyotr Nesterov on the Eastern Front. Of See, course, I told you he's probably got some rude gesture. You know, he waved and smiled most of the time, but then he and got he's some, like, I'll show you, and he just rams just them. Just ram the guy, total. Well, unfortunately, both planes crashed as a result of the attack, killing all occupants. I would think so. Didn't work very well. Falling from the sky hurts. Yes. Well, it's not the falling that kills you. 
It's the, the sudden stopping. Yep. <laughs> uh, eventually, pilots began firing handheld firearms at enemy aircraft. However, pistols were too inaccurate, and the single-shot rifles too unlikely to score any sort of a hit. On October 5th, 1914, French pilot Louis Quinal opened fire on a German aircraft with a machine gun for the first time. And suddenly, the era of air combat was underway as more and more aircraft were fitted with machine guns. And it's sort of an interesting aside, Chris. Once machine guns started being fitted to aircraft, there were all these new engineering challenges to surmount. So there was an like obvious not need. not shooting your propeller off. Exactly. So there's obviously. How did that technology work? Let me tell you about it. Yes, I would love to know. <laughs> so there was obviously a need for some means to fire a machine gun forward from an aircraft. The first couple of times they just had them on the side and were like, yeah. we're going to shoot to our side. But it makes most natural place for the gun because then the pilot can basically fire in the direct line of flight so right. that the gun could be aimed by aiming the aircraft. However, this presented the obvious problem of shooting your own propeller. Because normally when the propeller is going, you can't see it. You look right through it. It's not right. a big deal. Yes. Uh, early experiments with synchronized machine guns had been carried out in several countries before the war. However, this was harder than it sounded. Well, how? F I mean, we're talking thousands of revolutions per minute Correct. times however many propellers there are. Correct. So we're talking, if an engine is turning at 4,000 revolutions per minute and we've got two propellers, that's 8,000 Propellers it has to not hit. <laughs> Correct. Well, here's the bigger problem. So the Lewis gun, for example, was used on many Allied aircraft. It was almost impossible to synchronize it due to the erratic rate of fire because of its open bolt firing cycle. Some That's a delay, like when you hit the yeah, you trigger. You hit the trigger and it's, it, it's a slight millisecond delay or anything, yeah. but it makes it impossible to synchronize because now all of a sudden you have this delay that's not consistent. Right. So some RNAS aircraft, including Bristol Stouts, Scouts? Not Stouts. They probably weren't very stout, actually. No, probably not. No, had an unsynchronized fuselage-mounted Lewis gun positioned to fire directly through the propeller discs, and instead of the prop blades uh, basically trying to miss them, they just reinforced the prop. What? Yes. So they said, okay, well, we can't synchronize it. So fine, we're just going to reinforce the propeller to make it bulletproof. I and hope just... the guy wore some goggles. So listen to this. The prop blades were reinforced with tape to hold the wood together if hit. Tape. And it, tape. Literally tape. just they tape. Or just tape. They just duct tape. tape? Prop. I don't think duct tape was. No, there's no, probably wasn't a lot of ducting no, back then. But at here's, all. here's their theory it relied on the fact that the odds of any single round hitting a blade was just below 5%. So That's still a lot. Short bursts each. of fire were used, and it offered a temporary expedient, even if it was not ideal solution. Because yeah, you'll shoot, and every once in a while, that five percent chance of hitting one of your propeller blades, it won't just shatter or blow apart. It'll just like splinter, and the tape holds it together. Right. We just go. Well, why don't they just put an electric servo on a switch and put it on the wing? But that's this type of stuff didn't exist. No, they didn't have solid state. They didn't have transistors. They didn't have Ooh. any of this type of stuff. They didn't have a way they to had just cables. Right. Right. Uh, the Maxim guns used both by both the Allies as the Vickers and Germany as the Parabellum MG-14 and Spandua IMG-08. Those are the gun models. MG-14s. MG stuff. That's serious. Yeah. Serious weaponry. Uh, that had a closed bolt firing cycle, which meant that the exact instance the round would be fired could be more readily predicted, making these weapons considerably easier to finally synchronize. And I the way that worked, what? Did they have tracer rounds back then? 
I believe so. So they still ha- they were able to see where they were shooting at least. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know when tracer rounds were. I'm were trying invented. to remember my World War One dogfighting like PC game from high school. Well, that's bound to be accurate if it Obviously, was in a video game. And it had tracers. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's what I'm going off of there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> the standard French light machine gun, the Hotchkiss, was like the Lewis, also virtually impossible to synchronize. The Moraine Solner. 1915 was when the first tracer round was invented. Um, the United States introduced it in 1917. So it's reasonably plausible that they could have existed. Yeah. yeah. Well, they did during yeah. World War One. Yeah. It's just whether they had them on the planes or not. I'm sure they did. Otherwise, you don't know what you're shooting at. It's like mandatory. That's why they probably were invented in the first you're place. You're probably right. Um, let's see. The Moraine Solander Company designed a safety backup in the form of deflector blades which were ornamental wedges fitted to the rear surface of a propeller to deflect bullets. What? What do you think the first tracer round was used for? First real tracer tracer round. We're talking 14th century. Oh. Yeah. Starting fires? It was, they used flaming cannonballs to find out where their cannonballs were going. So they they covered it with like pitch and lard and I tallow, suppose that is a tracer and round. And they would light it on fire and go, all right. Perfect. It's going there. <laughs> <laughs> that's where it's going. So that was the first tracer round. Was I the, suppose. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I like that. That also probably could start a fire then, too. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to reread this section because you obviously were not paying attention. That's how it goes. I'm very bad. Have You're that. still not paying attention. I'm paying attention. Okay. I, I would just okay. answer to you. So the next company and next trial at trying to figure out how to shoot through a propeller yes. was a safety... Hold, hold on. Just a what? second. So what would happen? You get 5%. Yeah, five percent chance you're dead every time you pull the trigger. No, it's just you're going to you shoot. They're held together with tape, right? <laughs> Come on, man. You got five percent chance every with every bullet that you're going to blow your propeller into pieces. Right. That's not great odds. I mean, and then you can just kind of drift back down into enemy territory. Yeah. Ooh, this is not good. <laughs> just, I'm just saying. Not, well, you probably had greater than a five percent ch- like chance of dying every time you got in one of these rickety airplanes, anyways. These dudes were awesome. That's all I can say. So you're probably like, well, that's that's small potatoes compared to me just making it back. Yeah, just not running out of fuel or losing oil pressure or yeah. anything else. Okay, so the next innovation in trying to shoot through a propeller was the deflector blade. The, 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 the next technology beyond just crossing your fingers. Right. It okay. was a deflector blade. <laughs> okay. This is a metal wedge fitted to the rear surfaces of a propeller blade to deflect the bullets. Also not great. So I don't know how this is aerodynamic. You basically think of a propeller, yeah. and then you put these metal wedges on the back right where the bullet would hit, and it just kind of ricochets it off instead of hitting the propeller. This also sounds terrible, especially for a lot of planes that had, like, canvas. Uh, They're all canvas. Yeah, this is not great. This well, is, I mean, the good thing about canvas with these is you tears, could take— It doesn't just explode, yeah. You could take a lot of bullet holes through that before your airframe doesn't fly anymore. I just, I imagine being the guy getting sprayed with bullet fragments as you're flying basically into these deflected bullet pieces. <laughs> you're right. This all sounds awful. So the way that it, they finally figured out what the technology is with a closed bolt machine gun where you can accurately predict how long it takes from the actuation to hitting the target mm-hmm. or firing out of the barrel, I guess, is they had a linkage then. So the linkage ran off a cam yep. on the propeller shaft and would not allow the gun to fire if it was in the position that would impact the propeller correct well that sounds reasonable that's how i would do it yes and that's how they tried to do it at first but then the gun would either jam or it'd be such a delay between when the firing happened because it's an open bolt that they just blew apart the propeller anyways 
So we're like, well, that, screw that. So let's just tape screw it. that. Let's just guess. Let's tape it. Yeah, let's tape it together. <laughs> Regardless, this dire consequence of war necessitated. <laughs> wow, necessitated. That's what I was going okay. for. All right. The dire consequences of war necessitated a rapid advancement in technology. Yeah, I would think so. Do you want to hear about another rapid advancement in technology? Is it a way to, uh, they actually got it to work with the blowing your propeller apart? Well, or? no, I, I was I was going for Obert Car Care. Oh, the yeah. The rapid advancement yes, in polishing technology. I hear, I hear they've got some new products. I've coming. also heard that through yeah, the grapevine. Yeah, we're going to be giving some away here on the podcast pretty soon. Ooh, yeah. Well, for now, you can head over to obertcarcare.com. That is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies. It's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. That means they are passionate about detailing and know what actually should go into a product instead of some weird lab coat wearing guy and engineer <laughs> in the lab going, hey, let's put this in here. And he has no idea what it means to actually polish his car. These guys know. And they truly are great products. It's a simple foolproof two-step process. It's easy and gives an amazing finish. They're often Offering 20% off your next order, guys, when you use the code OVERCREST. That code is good not only on their website at obertcarcare.com, but also on detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com. Go check them out today. So I was looking a little, while you were reading that, I was kind of looking at the trace around thing a little bit more. And from Flaming Cannonballs, we went to, they had these. I Like arrow, Flaming Arrows were before Flaming Cannonballs, though. They had spotlight bullets. When they would impact on something, they would like poof, and they would like sh flash a little light or a little bit of smoke. It's probably made out of some weird, like, yeah, radioactive. <laughs> well, I don't know if I don't think we had radioactive things in the early 20th century, late uh, 19th century, but those got banned because the Hague Conventions, which is kind of like the the NATO treaty or whatever, yeah. where you just don't do bad things to each other. They're considered exploding bullets. I guess if you got hit one, oh. by one of these, it probably wouldn't have been great for you. No, is my guess. No. An exploding bullet, probably no good. Well, we we certainly had uh, radioactive material in that time because do you remember our episode we did? Didn't we do an episode on the phosphorus girls? The phosphorus what? Girls? Yeah. No. The watchmakers? No. What? This must be something you're thinking about doing and haven't done yet. Dude. Yeah. You haven't heard of this? No. Do you know what makes your watch hands glow? Tritium. You know what it used to be? No. A radioactive substance. Oh. That they paid all these ladies to paint on, and they kept licking their brush. Oh, no. And their jaws would fall off. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, that's a preview for a future episode. <laughs> okay, back to our young Bruce. When he was only 18 years old, war was already looming in Europe as World War II began to take hold. Bruce enrolled in the USAFF's Flying Cadet Training Program. And in a twist of fate, he was assigned to none other than Johnny Burns and continued to flourish under the instructor's own tutelage. Mm. So the same guy that taught him how to fly in the first place, three years later, after enlisting, he goes, oh, Johnny. There can't be that many people being pilots back then. You know, right. it's, it's I think dangerous, right. it's scary, it takes a lot of moxie. Yeah, For sure. So I, partly because Johnny kind of knew that this Bruce guy had it in him, it wasn't long before he was sent on an accelerated pilot training program at Spence Airfield in Georgia. At Spence Airfield, Bruce learned to fly the P-40 Warhawk fighter planes. Now, these single-seater planes had a top speed of 360 miles an hour and had been in service since 1938. 
Think how much faster that is than anything else that existed back then. That's what I'm talking about. Like the advancement from just like first taking flight at Kitty Hawk in sand dunes, yep. where you basically twisted your body to control the warpage of the wing, yep. to 360 miles in a fighter. So you're driving a car. Imagine going to the airport, right? You're going to go to the airport, airport and fly one of these P-40s. You are driving a car. Just to give you perspective of the breadth here, okay. a lot of, you'd be driving like a Model A mm-hmm. or a Model T or whatever it is. You know, a lot of Model As were still around in the 30s. Oh, like yeah, the for sure. Model Ts that were driven all the time. So you're driving a car, readjusting the ignition timing yeah. while you're driving there <laughs> and bouncing your teeth out of your face at yes. 20 miles per hour to get in this car that's going over, or this plane going over 300 miles per hour, this war machine. This technology was unbelievable. Right. And that's why it seemed like such a pie-in-the-sky idea for Bruce when he was a young kid. Like, not many people get to fly, but he was so bound and determined. So he trained for 240 hours and graduated as a flight officer in the fall of 1943. He was then sent for more advanced training. Working I bet these dudes got checks. I these pilots must have just... Wait. Okay. Just wait. <laughs> these dudes I, must have been I, it. Just wait. If you think just being a pilot gets you checks, just wait till you hear what Bruce does. I mean, being in Top Gun and all this I other stuff, to he gets depicted out, in the movies. I tried to look up when he got married, because if he wasn't married back when this next thing happened, oh, <laughs> all right. So he was sent for more advanced training, working with planes such as the dive-bombing A-36 Apache and early models of the North American P-51 Mustang. So the That's P-51 the like those, was yeah. just kind of coming into its own here. It was finally time for him to Is put his training. Is that the one with the Merlin engine? I believe so. Yeah, pretty sweet. We should yeah. do an episode on the Merlin engines. Yeah. yeah. Continue, sorry. Okay. Uh, he continued his training and was finally able to put his qualifications into practice as he was sent to Europe and assigned to the 380th Fighter Squadron of Britain. Carr's first love was, of course, airplanes. Bruce Carr. Yes. Okay. Cars loved airplanes. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that sounded funny after I said it. And the advanced P-51 that he had trained in was state of the art. It truly was a dream come to fruition for Bruce. And so when he was assigned a P-51 to fly in Europe, he quickly christened the plane the Angel's Playmate. Ooh, yeah. I like it. Yeah. On March 8th, 1944, Bruce accomplished... Although, weren't all the, uh, weren't all the Angel's men... Like, mm. Mm. like Gideon mm. and Michael and mm-hmm. mm. Mm. continue. Well, the angel's playmate. Right. So that's the woman. Oh, yes. Yes, you're correct. Yeah, that's see? actually a great name for a plane then. Yeah, because yep. they're all women, right? They're all ladies. Yeah. You get painted on the side of the woman yeah, with all see, the bombs that works. and stuff. Okay. All right. Anyways, angel's playmate. I just playmate. to think that through a second. Thank you for thinking that no through. Problem. Yeah, uh, March 8th, 1944, him and Angel's Playment accomplished the first kill of the entire squadron. But it wasn't one that he would receive any credit for. You see, Carr had been pursuing a German Messerschmitt BF-109 just outside of Berlin and began firing on the enemy, driving him to dive lower and lower in the sky. Just one of the bullets that Carr had fired actually hit the other plane, but it was enough. The pilot lost his focus and realized that he could not get away from Cars P-51 in his older plane, so he made the decision to abandon the aircraft. However, in the Nazi pilot's haste, he apparently hadn't realized how low of an altitude he was at, as he was too close to the ground to deploy his parachute and died on impact. Oh, no. Effectively, Carr had scored his first kill, as it was his actions that had led to the death of the Luftwaffe airman. However, upon review... 
Can you imagine the sheer panic of this German? No. Like having this plane chasing you and you can't get away and he's shooting you and you're yes. just the absolute sheer panic. Exactly. To be like, ah, and just jump out of the plane. Yep. That's and then the best solution. Like, it's almost like when you're in a building and it's on fire. And well, you're, this and you're guy thought he was escaping by, you know, deploying his parachute, but he was just so close to the ground. He didn't realize it in his... Yeah, never, there was never time to... Right. Um, however, upon review, Carr's superiors weren't of the same opinion that this was an official kill. They saw it as more of an accident than anything else, even though the airman would not have abandoned his plane, obviously, had Carr not been in pursuit. He tried to argue his case. He claimed that his aggression in chasing the ME-109 had resulted in the plane and airman going down. The way he saw it, he had scared the German pilot literally to death as he had flung himself out of the plane without thinking it through. His superiors didn't concede to this point, however. The bigger issue, it turns out, may have been that his superiors were concerned that Bruce was simply too reckless of a pilot and didn't want to encourage him any further. But that didn't stop Bruce. He was transferred to a different squadron, which turned out to be the making of his career. On June 14th, 1944, he received his first credit when he shot down an ME-109 over Normandy. Just three days after, he assisted in bringing down an FW-190. Immediately, Carr became commissioned as a second lieutenant. The following month, in September of 44, the squadron attacked a number of Ju-88 bombers on a German airfield. Upon the return, the group spied over 30 Falkenwolf 190 planes flying around 2,000 feet below them. The Americans caught the fighters off guard in a daring attack. It was Carr's time to shine. So they, he, they came in from above, so they, yes, the other guys had no, no idea. Clue. Carr single-handedly brought down three Axis fighters in under 10 minutes which is a stunning feat. Then Carr spotted that a fellow American was in trouble, so he escorted him and his badly damaged plane back to the base in the midst of the enemy fire. Carr had earned himself a silver star for his courageous exploits that day. It's a huge honor as the third highest decoration for valor in any combat. Then, on October 29th, 1944, after firing on two more ME-109s over Germany, Bruce earned his status as an ace. What's ace? An ace, you see, Chris, is a pilot who has five confirmed kills. So in order to become an ace, you need to have five confirmed kills. He hadn't much time to even think about this achievement, though, as he took off on another attack right away. See, Bruce Carr was leading his flight on a strafing run over German territory in Czechoslovakia four days later when his plane encountered anti-aircraft fire. Flak. Flak, correct. Yeah. Uh, Carr realized that his plane was going to be going down in flames. Do you he know just how suffered worked? way too much. I think it's basically exploding shells. Yeah, it is. It's, but they're small, right? And they just have shrapnel that just... Yes, it's basically airborne it's grenades. It's fireworks, Or basically. a grenade. You know, well, yes, but fireworks... <laughs> but the thing about, like, fireworks have a few is they, they uh -huh. go boom, and they go up, and then they blow up. Right. Like flak. It goes boom. Right. But, you know, for killing. Yeah. As opposed to... Just enjoyment. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> a good. Place. Anyways, he's uh, his plane is in bad shape over Czechoslovakia. He makes the decision to parachute to the ground, even though he knew he would be landing right in the midst of enemy territory. So, although Carr was many miles from any Allied base, he managed to avoid being captured by the enemy for a number of days. And can you just imagine how terrifying that would have been? Just floating down in absolute silence. Sound of your parachute coming down. You can probably see a little little German ants running around down yeah. there. Yeah. 
And just think of once they're on the ground, hunkering down in the woods, hiding as German troops and civilians are just walking around, milling about their day, worrying every second might lead to your capture. He was drenched from the rain, cold, and hadn't slept in days, nor had he found anything to eat. He thought it was time to possibly surrender to the enemy rather than be captured. He had heard that the Luftwaffe has actually treated enemy airmen better than any other prisoner of war, holding some sort of mutual respect for fellow airmen. Reluctantly, Bruce decided to approach a German airfield he had seen on his way down. Bruce got to the fence surrounding the airfield and made a decision that would change his life. He stayed in the woods nearby that night and decided that he would simply walk up to the gate the next morning to give himself up for surrender. But as he surveyed the airfield, ensuring that he wouldn't be seen from his hiding space, he spotted something that gave him pause for thought. He noticed there was a German ground crew working on a Falkenwolf FW-190 on the edge of the runway, not far from where he lay in hiding. They seemed to be fueling the plane and performing regular maintenance. When the crew reattached the panels to the plane and left, Carr knew what he had to do in the early hours. Carr worked through the plan as mine, and for him, there was no other choice. Does this dude know, know German? He does not. Okay. <laughs> we will get there. <laughs> You see, being Do these captured. Have keys? Is there like a key? Uh, no, there you, isn't. You put a key no, in. There's it, like a little keychain on it. <laughs> there's no. Yeah, it's very unclear. Uh, <laughs> being captured as a POW, though, obviously wasn't the preferable choice here. Right? He's going to try to fight his way out. So, in the middle of the night, he snuck up to the enemy plane, climbed aboard, and waited until dawn so he could get a good look at the instruments and cockpit. It's pitch black outside. He basically makes his way in through the fence to yep. the plane, hops in, and he's like. I can't see anything, so I'm going to wait till Great the early security, hours. By the way, well, I mean there was a fence. Okay, you're also <laughs> in German territory. Like right. they're yeah, not you're thinking behind, someone's going to yeah, sneak yeah. in. So the instruments, as you What's pointed the out, movie called. Uh, I, I hadn't even heard of this before. <laughs> That's just it. Right. Okay, so as you pointed out, the instruments were, of course, all in German, as would be expected. But Bruce had never sat in a Messerschmitt and had no idea what any of these foreign controls were. His theory was that if he kept flipping switches and moving controls in the opposite position of where they currently were, he'd find the starter eventually. Right. Eventually, he found the starter lever for the 190 and pulled it. But unfortunately, the plane did not start. His heart sank. What, he did worried. It, did it try to start or was it just like dead silence? Dead silence. Oh. He worried that if he was discovered trying to steal the plane, he would be punished rather than just surrendering. Oh, yeah. Right? His Just initial plan was like, I'm going to surrender. They're going to treat me better than if I'm captured. Yeah, now you're a thief. Now a you're in bad trouble. Yeah. After a few heart-stopping moments, he realized that the starter lever for German planes went in the opposite direction. Huh. So he pushed forward. The BMW-built motor emitted a comforting roar. Luckily, the FW-190 included the most advanced throttle system for a World War II aircraft called the Kommandergertat. This mean? controlled boost pressure, fuel flow, mixture settings, and prop all on a single lever, making it about the only plane in World War II that an enemy pilot could theoretically steal and manage to get going down a runway without actually learning how to do it. That's awesome. So otherwise, he would have like had to find the mixture yeah. and the boost and everything else and do it individually. This is like the easy plane where it's just all integrated. Right. So he lucked out. Carr wasted no time and pushed on full throttle racing across the airfield. 
By this time, in the early morning hours, the Luftwaffe personnel were already coming out to see what the hell was going on, so he didn't really have time to line up on the runway. Instead, he ran across the corner of the airfield, narrowly passing between two hangars before gaining enough ground speed to finally pull up and take off. After being elated that he had successfully taken to the skies, he realized he had another problem. There's no fuel in the plane. No, there's fuel. Okay, I don't know. What's the problem? He's in a German plane. Yes. Well, how are you going to worry? Right. It's not like they're just going to be like, oh, hey, Mr. Carr, come on in. Yeah, no, he's in a German plane, which he knew would be shot down if Allied troops spotted it. So I was wondering, is, are, do they operate on different radio frequencies? Yes, they do. Okay, so they're not they, on the but same. intentionally, they use different frequencies, so there's no crosstalk. Right. And they can't, like, tune in and try to figure it's out. it's like a radio. It's like a switch. It's like, dink, dink, dink. You're like, right. these two, three yeah, frequencies. Yeah, you can't just tune yeah, in. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a exactly. ham radio. So... Sure enough, when he reached friendly territory, those on the ground opened fire. So with all of his brazen fortitude and skill, he took the plane to the deck, flying just over the tops of trees at 350 miles per hour. Bruce later said that the choice wasn't great because he was convinced that, quote, every 50 cal M2 machine gun in existence in the 200 miles between that German airfield and his home field had taken shots at him. So who trained these guys that are taking shots at him? It's like, it's like... They're stormtroopers, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but think about it. His theory worked because at 350 miles an hour right over your head, you can't move a gun quick no, enough to follow it. Not even close. So his plan worked. And when he got close to his squadron's base in France, he decided not to mess around. So keep in mind that at this point in the war, the Allies had pretty much total air control and therefore was almost no threat of German attack. Therefore, men weren't constantly arming the anti-aircraft guns. In addition, his radio wouldn't communicate with the American base, as you mentioned, so he had no way of telling them that he was actually a friendly. So you just stick like a, did he have like a white scarf on or anything? His underwear. Yeah, just like. Like, What, are they going to trust that as a plane's coming at their air base? Oh, I think that's his jimmies. He might have his jimmies. (laughs) (laughs) So another problem was that he couldn't get the landing gear back down. And rather than make himself a target while trying to figure out which control did what, he decided to just belly land this thing. And that's exactly what he did, skidding the Messerschmitt down the airfield as American soldiers literally were sprinting towards the quad 50 cal guns to shoot him. Yeah. Initially, military police on the base did not accept that he was actually an American airman. But when his group commander arrived, he identified Bruce as their missing man. The brave Bruce Carr remains the only pilot to ever leave a base flying an Allied aircraft and return in an enemy plane. Apparently, nobody's seen Iron Eagle. Have we seen Iron Eagle? I don't think so. What happened in Iron Eagle? uh, Basically, the kid is going to avenge his father, and he's got his little cassette tape, and he plays it, and and it's the dude saying, hey, you've never seen this, like, trailer movie? never heard of this. Uh, It's kind of came out, like, around Top Gun, and it's nowhere near as good, but it's still pretty pretty good. I feel like I just saw, like, a vintage poster for this or something. I probably sent it to you. It's the black dude who's the pilot who takes in, like, this this hotshot kid pilot who's not actually supposed to fly, but somehow gets out on the runway at the Air Force Base and, like, flies planes and stuff like that. Does he steal an enemy plane, then? He basically lands the plane in this on this airfield to go get his, uh, to get his dad and then gets on the plane and then like leaves the enemy. So basically, yes. Yeah, but it's still his plane. 
not as impressive as well, stealing an enemy aircraft from behind enemy lines. He steals an airplane from the Americans. Yeah, that's fine. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As you can imagine, though, Bruce's daring escape from behind enemy lines earned him status of a legend. He was the talk of his fighter group and rightfully earned him a promotion to first lieutenant. He was also rewarded with some leave to recuperate from his actions. But that's not Bruce's style. It was not the end of the war for Bruce Carr at all. On April 2nd, 1945, first lieutenant now Bruce Carr was leading a group of American fighters on a reconnaissance mission when they eyed 60 German fighters soaring overhead. It seemed like a suicide mission. But Bruce immediately ordered an attack. But Carr never shied away from any sort of challenge. 15 to 1, Chris. That's pretty serious odds. The whole thing only lasted minutes. I mean, it's minutes. not a Powerball or anything, but it's still pretty Well, pretty I tough. think the odds are a little more um, dire in consequence. Yeah, I suppose if you went to the to buy a Powerball and they said, well, if you don't win, you're dead. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> you I don't would think play. Anybody, yeah, you would play. The whole thing only lasted minutes. But Bruce Carr and the three other American fighters downed all 15 German planes. Without any losses? No, they wow. made it through. The first lieutenant had personally brought down two FW-190s, three M-109s, and even managed to cause damage to a sixth plane. This gave Gar the distinct honor of being the last ace in a day in World War II history. Ace in a day. Good ace grief. Ace in a day. He was subsequently promoted to captain in April of that year. He was also awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the country's second highest award for valor. In all, his actions in the European theater were legendary. He had scored 15 confirmed air-to-air -air kills, caused numerous casualties and deaths on the ground, and flown in 172 combat missions by the end of the war. One could expect that Bruce Carr would hang up his wings then after all his success in World War II, but he was still a very young man at this age. Remember, he enlisted As right were most at of 18. these young boys that exactly. were there. Yeah. So he was assigned to the Acrojets as an F-80 shooting star pilot at Williams Air Force Base in Arizona when he got home. When President Harry S. Truman announced that America would be supporting South Korea in June of 1950, Carr was one of the first pilots called up. He had made major by now and was assigned to the 336th Fighter Interceptor Squadron. He flew in 57 combat missions during the Korean War. He served as a commanding officer of that squadron, and in 1968, Carr became a colonel in the Air Force. He then served during the Vietnam War, flying 286 more combat missions. He rotated back to the U.S. in 69, but wouldn't retire from the Air Force for another four years. He served his country well, and his heroic efforts were suitably rewarded. But as in his career in retirement, Colonel Carr did not give up flying. <laughs> he regularly flew in a P-51 just like his angel in years gone by. He finally passed away from prostate cancer in 1998 at age 64. He's buried in Arlington Cemetery, but his legendary skills and heroics serve as both inspiration and reminders to countless, both military and civilian, of adversity and perseverance in the face of hardship. Indeed. It's... Uh... I can't imagine. I just, I'd never heard the story, even if you don't know the whole story, just to know that someone got shot down 
in enemy territory in Germany. Hid for a few days. Star- Stole starving, a plane. Starving. Thirsty. Scared. Maybe not scared, but I would have been scared. <laughs> yeah, I would have you know, been. terrified. And he's about to give himself up because he's going to die of thirst. And he goes, eh, you know what? I'm just going to steal an enemy plane instead. I bet they left the keys in that MFR. <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably the way things went. All right, guys. That's all we got time for today. Thank you, Jake. That was awesome. We will see you guys on Friday. Take care. Oh, 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 oh,